And so with this in-between state of Chapel Perilous, I just want to read a couple things here. I love this idea of Chapel Perilous, having been there myself. <laughs> I find that these descriptions of it are quite excellent. So if you value normalcy, if you value a comfortable, predictable world, turn back now. Once you cross the threshold of Chapel Perilous, there is no going back. For to enter this portal is to enter into the realm of magic, meaningful coincidence, and synchronicity. Here the laws of common sense do not apply. Chapel Perilous is guarded by that ancient trickster, fate. Should you proceed, you have been warned. And they quote Nietzsche here, If you gaze long enough into an abyss, the abyss will gaze back into you. So... What Robert Anton Wilson here says, which I like, says, In researching occult conspiracies, one eventually faces a crossroad of mythic proportions, or by experiencing some kind of schism of the mind, not necessarily just reading information, you can come out, you can come out on the other side either stone-cold paranoid or an agnostic about everything. There is no third way. I came out agnostic, says Robert Anton Wilson. Chapel Perilous, like the mysterious entity called I, cannot be located in the space-time continuum. It is weightless, odorless, tasteless, and undetectable by ordinary instruments. Indeed, like the ego, it is even possible to deny that it is there. And yet, even more like the ego, once you are inside it, there doesn't seem to be any way to ever get out again, until you suddenly discover that it has been brought into existence by thought, and that it does not exist outside thought. Everything you fear is waiting with slabbering jaws in Chapel Perilous. But if you are armed with the wand of intuition, the cup of sympathy, the sword of reason, and the pentacle of valor, you will find there, the legends say, the medicine of metals, the elixir of life, and the philosopher's stone, true wisdom, and perfect happiness. That's what the legends always say, and the language of myth is poetically precise. For instance, if you go into that realm without the sword of reason, you will lose your mind. But at the same time, if you take only the sword of reason without the cup of sympathy, you will lose your heart. Even more remarkably, if you approach without the wand of intuition, you can stand at the door for decades with never realizing you have arrived. You might think you were just waiting for a bus or wandering from room to room looking for your cigarettes, watching a TV show, or reading a cryptic and ambiguous book. Chapel Perilous is tricky in that way. <laughs> so... Chapel Perilous is a stage in the magical quest in which your maps turn out to be totally inadequate for the territory and you're completely lost. And at that point, you get an ally who helps you find your way back to something you can understand. And then after that, for the rest of your life, you've got this question. Was that ally a supernatural helper, or was it just part of my own mind trying to save me from going totally bonkers with this stuff? <laughs> find one other one here. That is good. So... The Chapel Perilous, or the Holy Grail Castle, has been the ultimate destination for knights questing after the Holy Grail. The story has been around a long time. The mystical experience within the chapels are a climax of many an Arthurian adventure story. Those who were entered were typically subjected to a rigorous battery of challenges, some of which seemed to be training exercises, while others seemed tests of purity, conviction, and understanding. So... Chapel Perilous, right? This is a moment of schism in the mind. That's the main thing, where suddenly we are in way over our head in the deep end and things are not as they appear to be. And I always look at things such as the rattlesnake synchronicity of my sister sending the postcard talking about the rattlesnake and then finding an extremely rare large rattlesnake in a very 
unlikely location to just be little reminders along the way that we don't really know what's happening and that coincidences are not coincidences and what's happening is not what we think is happening to keep ourselves open to the mystery and one of my favorite uh historical characters as someone who skillfully traversed the stage of chapel perilous is black elk for those people who don't know black elk being uh a lakota hayoka holy man the hayoka being the sacred backwards clown of the lakota tradition but also recognized in other indigenous traditions i was talking on the last podcast about drupa kuni drupa kuni being the ultimate hayoka of the tibetan tradition uh and Black Elk, for those who don't know, quick synopsis of his life, which you can read about, and I highly recommend it. Black Elk Speaks, extraordinarily powerful and short, easy-to-read book about what happened to the Lakota when the cavalry and the genocide was occurring in the late 1800s to the Lakota. So Black Elk um, gets really sick at around the age of nine, and he goes off into a trance where he's somewhere between death and in another world. And in his vision, he's taken to Pike's Peak, I believe is where it is. It's a holy, one of the holy locations for the Lakota. And he receives a message in a vision from the grandfathers, the elder guardian spirits, about reestablishing the sacred hoop of his people and defeating the Waisichu. Waisichu meaning like unending masses which is what they would call the buffalo, but also referring to white people that were coming and decimating the culture and taking the land, killing the people. And he was given this vision, then he came back. And after he comes back from being in this trance, psych- psychedelic state, this um, visionary state, and has this medicine of another world communicating through him, he's totally unstable. And it's a, what you would call a classic example of being a chapel perilous, having a schism. And it's funny that I decided to do this, finish this podcast. So I started it last night, but I got interrupted by something. And uh, I had to do it. I decided to finish it today. And I wasn't actually planning on doing a podcast and talking about Black Elk. This just sort of arose as I was doing, uh, as I started speaking. And the card for today from the Osho Tarot deck was appropriate schizophrenia. <laughs> so... Uh, you could say on a certain level, Black Elk was in a schizophrenic state. You could say Chapel Perilous is almost like a schizophrenic state. And what differentiates the schizophrenic from the mystic is one is swimming and the other one is drowning in this uncharted territory of the psyche. And in shamanic cultures, indigenous cultures, ancient cultures, obviously the one who's in a schizophrenic or altered state experiencing this balance between worlds is not one who is sick and needs to be institutionalized but is one who is carrying a very deep and important message of healing and empowerment for the community uh nonetheless black elk only being a nine-year-old boy not having any context for these things was starting to go crazy and he talks about in the book how when the wind would howl it felt like it was howling through him and he could predict things and like there's moments where there's lightning striking and he's just freaking out and running from teepee to teepee and, and he's just in a total panic and his inner knowing his intuitive senses and his interconnectivity to nature and the animals and the forces of the elements around him are like staggering and, and you can just read and feel the truth and the power of the conviction and the awareness come through the, the very simple language that 
John Neinhart, the translator, uses in the in the text to explain uh, Black Elk's state when he was a young boy. And eventually the father's like, okay, there's something. <laughs> we got to do something about this guy. This is too much. And they take him to uh, a medicine person, and they put him up on a vision quest and a sweat lodge. And when he comes back, he shares the vision, and then the whole community comes together and they reenact the vision through masks and theater, essentially. But not theater in the sense of entertainment, but like a ceremony where they're embodying the the entities and the deities of the vision of Black Elk of the grandfather's coming to reestablish the sacred hoop of the people. And it's not a... So when you talk, when you spend time with uh, indigenous and people of ceremonial nature, it's not a metaphor. You know, they actually are becoming the thing. So when I say theater, I just mean that's what it looks like, but they are becoming, they're embodying it. They're psychologically, spiritually giving themselves to that energy and that force so that it can move through them. They can become a vessel. And then after that, they empower black elk to become a healer and he then goes on to heal many many people in his community and his he starts to gain control over the visionary state and the the interconnectivity and powers that he has the medicine that he has from the visionary state and this is the challenge of chapel perilous is you have come in contact with forces so far beyond your control and beyond your limited egoic perception of reality that now you have to integrate a much larger context of what's happening and humbly give yourself to the role that it's asking you to participate in. And if you're not part of a culture that has the amazing, powerful wisdom such as the Lakota, this can get very difficult and you can find yourself in a lot of funny situations or painful situations and desperate situations that aren't resolved easily so the um the state of chapel perilous being one where i feel on a certain level like all of humanity perhaps not in like the sense of a mystical schizophrenic way but all of us are experiencing some interruption very deeply about how we are acting and moving through life and i think that when these synchronicities come our way the rattlesnake to the rattlesnake rattlesnake postcard to the actual animal there's it's a message of some source of something that we need to pay attention to and how to interpret messages and how to interpret what they're trying to communicate to us and that in and of itself being a very deep practice and something that no one can really give you a clear answer about. But to pay very close attention to what's happening and to not just approach things like, oh, that's just an animal that could hurt someone. I'm just going to throw it in a dumpster. <laughs> but like, okay, wait. Not only is that, that is a dangerous animal, but why is it here? Why has it come to me at this moment? Why is it now in my possession? What is it that life is trying to communicate and with black elk it's interesting because he helps kind of lead like on some level an uprising through the practice of the ghost dance where the lakota are 
channeling in spiritual power, ancestors, energies to help reestablish the sacred hoop uh, and over rebel and overcome the the Waisichu, the U.S. government. And however, after Wounded Knee, where there's a, a massacre and many people are shot and killed, children and women, there's a sense of total defeat on the Lakota people. And the book ends in a really, I think the word would be somber and solemn way, of uh, this sense of, no, this is, you know, there's been a failure and this is the end, the, you know, the death of the vision. It's this really tragic ending. You're just like, oh, God bless me. It does not leave you a feeling of optimism. And when I was reading this, I was also, uh, I started, I read another book, a uh, biography about Black Elk's life. And what's interesting is that what happens afterwards is that he actually becomes um, a, I want to say a Catholic, if not a Catholic, a Christian preacher. And, the, you know, he would put his Chinupa, the sacred pipe of the Lakota, like on the altar with the Bible. And he becomes, he becomes this very interesting bridge between like Native American spirituality, Lakota culture, and also Christian Christianity. And he goes throughout all over the Americas, or rather the United States, uh, healing people and, you know, preaching the gospel basically at the same time in this very interesting um what would appear to be like a paradox, right? And a contradiction. It appears that way where you're like, oh, okay, where he like disregards some of the native practices, but then at the same time, he's also operating with them. And you can tell when, when you listen to the biography that this is on some level, like a really deep inner conflict for him. And, you know, I think it was only a couple of years ago, the Catholic church recognized him as a saint within the institution of the church. And it, it was interesting too, because when they, when they wrote the article about that, they were like, they mentioned that he had killed and scalped a couple people when he was very young. When Custer was killed, uh, Custer was killed by uh, Sitting Bull, and so there was kind of this interesting thing where the where the Catholic Church recognized him as a saint, but like the the writer of the article was like, "Oh yeah, but this guy's like, you know, you could you could sense they're like there's still there's some racism and bitterment and resentment and a lack of total acceptance of that." So obviously not everyone within the Christian Catholic canon is fully accepting a black elk. But what is interesting is he, you know, he, there's an end part of the biography where he goes with John Neinhardt uh, at the very end of his life and they go up to Pike's Peak and he goes up there and it's like totally clear sunny day in the Dakotas and black elk's like really quiet and really solemn somber and he's like, yeah, it's going to rain. And, and uh, John and I heard everyone else is like, what, what is he talking about? It's not going to rain. It's totally clear. And then Black Elk goes up to the top and he has his chinupa and his pipe and he starts to pray and it starts to rain. And it's this really powerful moment where you can just, you know, you can, you realize like the person's not just a person. It's not just an ordinary person. It's someone that's connected to something far beyond what the ordinary person can even comprehend. And he dies from what I've read considering himself to be a failure and that in and of itself is such a fascinating thing because if you look at it like they, the vision was to restore the sacred hoop and what happens to black elk is that that's precisely what he does he weaves together 
Lakota spirituality with the with Christianity. He's a saint in the Lakota tradition and the Catholic tradition. Here we are talking and listening about him. His uh, story has been shared all throughout the Americas, which presented itself as a way to demonstrate to uh, mainstream America that the Lakota were not savages, were actually profoundly deep mystical culture of tremendous wisdom and depth. So in a lot of ways, actually, he really brought forth the vision and activated it in a way that he least expected it, perhaps, but he did. I mean, he there was no defeat of the Waisichu from perhaps a physical level, but maybe on some level there is from the perspective, like a spiritual level, of bringing to a culture that recognition that this is there's something very profound about you know these people and the way that they related to life, and you, there are many cultures that have been wiped out and that we don't know much about the ancient Egyptians. There's no one that really can tell you <laughs> what was going on there. Having been to Egypt three times and many places and talked to many people, no one really knows. It's only something you can intuit it. We don't know what happened. It was just a culture that wiped, got wiped out and transformed. We can intuit a lot, and, there, and sure, there's some information, interpretation of symbols and things like that. But in the day, there's a lot of things we really don't know about it. But the Lakota, they're still around, right? And they have continued to exist, and more and more it seems that there has been like an awakening of the voice of the indigenous people due to the environmental catastrophe and crisis that we're facing at the moment. So I personally feel that the fact that I can sit here and have been gone so deep into Black Elk's life and come in contact with Lakota elders and Lakota ways and being opportunity to participate in ceremonies and things like this i can say that he fulfilled the vision it's just not the way that one thought it would be and this is i think a key thing for all of us to take away in our own path which is we might receive a vision or calling to do something and it might not look the way that we want it to look it might be wrapped up in paradox and pain and sorrow in a sense of failure because in a lot of ways that's what you could say happened with black elk and at the end of the day though we look back at that person it's like wow that's black elk i mean if the person was to come and walk into your door right now i mean the level of reverence and respect and uh like power that you would feel from that would be tremendous but Sometimes we never get to see the fruits of our work fully take form and shape. But at the same time, we can begin to see like what direction that we're heading in. And I think this is something that is a really key thing for all of us Like at this moment where life suddenly got very disrupted in a very chaotic and confusing ways. And I think it's interesting as I was reading this thing like, Robert Anton Wilson, he mentioned when you're reading conspiracy theories, <laughs> that can alone send you into Chapel Perilous, not necessarily a schizophrenic awakening such as Black Elk had. And I think that's very relevant because right now you have everyone. I talk to people that are quote-unquote conspiracy-oriented, and they know what they're saying is correct. And then I talk to people who are very 
trusting in mainstream science and they know what they know is correct. And having been through states of consciousness, which I would connect with Chapel Perilous really being a wonderful um, phrase to sum up what the experience was like more than once. I feel comfortable saying like, no one really knows what's going on here. And there's a profound level of uh, stubbornness and arrogance to just claim that whatever information one has accumulated is correct and not recognize that, you know, perhaps you're deeply entrenched in confirmation bias that you're not even aware of. So I like uh, this one thing here. It's written about Chapel Perilous. The person writes, I don't know who the author actually is. Oh, this was Timothy Leary, I think. No, I'm sorry. It says Teethery. You have no idea who that is, but anyway, it's good. I myself tend to think of Chapel Perilous as a place where you find yourself when the sheer absurdity of it all can no longer be ignored. When it all starts to add up and multiply while remaining somehow stubbornly indivisible. When synchronicity spirals out of control and you finally discover that you are, in fact, the center and purpose of the universe after all. Either that or you're stone cold crazy. Or maybe it's both. It's the dark night of the soul, and it's generally understood to be some kind of a trap. But it's also a doorway if one has the courage, strength, intelligence, and luck to pass through it. I like that a lot. And there's a wonderful... <laughs> I love this one uh, thing I can recall, where it's like... I think Ram Das talks about this, where if you're in... He was talking about his brother, because his brother was kind of lost in Chapel Perilous, Drugs brought him to a place of schizophrenia, and he was locked up in an institution, and he was locked up because he thought he was Christ, and he would go around telling everyone they're Christ, and like, okay, we're going to lock him up, and he's like, yeah, but if he was in India, <laughs> you go and tell everyone, <laughs> I'm Christ, they go, oh, yes, me too, or I'm God, yes, I am too, everyone would say that, everyone recognize that, yes, I also am God, and it's interesting because, uh, he would go visit his brother, and his brother would go, I'm Christ. And then Ram Dass go, yes, me too. And his brother says, no, 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 I'm Christ, no, not you. And this said, Ram Dass said, this is the problem with him, is that he, he recognizes that he's Christ, but he, he doesn't realize that other people are Christ too. This is the, this is the main problem with him. He's the only, he thinks he's the only one who could be Christ. <laughs> so I think reading this where they say, you know, you are in fact the center and purpose of the universe after all. Like, yes, you can come to a place inside of yourself where, like, you experience a revelation and confirmation of that. Nonetheless, though, we need to approach it from a place of, like, humility of recognizing, wait, there are others. There are other people. Yes, you might know something, but maybe there are other people that also know this. <laughs> maybe they know it more deeply than you do. And having that kind of humility, I would add to the attributes of courage, strength, and intelligence and luck to pass through it is an essential quality of recognizing, yeah, maybe you do know it. Maybe that is true. But also, what about others? And I heard Maestro Manuel say, even if you come to the revelation that you are the Buddha, if anything, that should only just make you more humble. That should make you more... I'll say it again, humble. <laughs> it shouldn't make you an egomaniac that goes around preaching that to people. And this is why in the initiatic traditions and then a lot of traditions overall in the world, the emphasis on character is really important. What is the character that we're bringing to life? Not just how our personality, but how we approach adversity and 
and challenges and obstacles and what kind of values and integrity are we bringing forth and Meister Manuel this beautiful thing that he said where he goes control of one's character leads one to destiny and freedom a lack of control of one's character is karma reinforced and that's a really powerful statement that the way we conduct ourselves the way we handle adversity the values that we adhere towards especially when we're being challenged those are the things that will liberate us from the forces that are binding us to this plane or whatever it is that creates suffering and a mastery over one's character can be the keys to freedom and so then this second paragraph here this one's from timothy leary from his book the game of life chapel perilous is the place of souls where they go after leaving their robot bodies while these bodies are still alive and walking the planet's surface also known as the dark night of the soul it relates to post-factor x activities in that both refer to out-of-body states however chapel perilous is where souls go when they are lost and factor x communications refer to how souls are found can also be seen as a negative activation of the neurosomatic circuit which is endured for as long as it takes the person to affect a positive activation or permanent rapture that can seem a little like heady because timothy leary was a heady psychologist but there's a thing that he created based on the chakra system called the circuits of consciousness and the neurosomatic circuit was something that he said was activated by smoking ganja or like deep meditation it's kind of like a zen state and he says when you enter into this state of consciousness if you go in there in a negative way for instance you smoke ganja and you get really paranoid that will be something that most people here probably can relate to uh then you can find yourself in a really confusing disturbing place and then he says you need to have a positive activation or permanent body rapture and my understanding of that would be when you find yourself in a state of paranoia and he's talking about being out of body or yeah out of body leaving the robot body right leaving the the reactive automatic aspect of yourself and feeling like you're not grounded uh what he recommends here in a very confusing way you could say is to have a positive somatic experience this is the value of incorporating practices that just simply make us feel good and that's why i've always been recommending to people heat therapy sauna therapy cold water immersion things that just shock the system and release in a healthy way a powerful flood of dopamine i was listening recently i highly recommend andrew hooverman's podcast it's a little heady scientifically, but there's a lot of gems in there. Hooverman Labs, I believe is what it's called, and has a good podcast on dopamine. And he says that cold water immersion releases dopamine 250% and it rivals cocaine. And he says the difference, though, is that when you go into cold water, uh, you have a slow rise in dopamine that goes on for hours. And then and then by several hours later, you decrease to your baseline and there's no crash. And obviously, it's, it's a healthy thing that empowers the body, empowers the mind, stabilizes the emotions, 
heightens focus by releasing adrenaline and uh, stimulates circulation in the body, repairs the body, heat cold shock proteins, the sauna and sweat lodge and heat therapy releasing heat shock proteins are very similar but you know in parallel but different um aspect within neurochemistry um but these are simple things that we can do when we find ourselves in the state of confusion and as they say here in chapel perilous paranoia or experiencing you could just say too much information coming in at once <laughs> finding ways to shock us back into life so oftentimes this is why the use of florida water in shamanic ceremonies if a person leaves their body you bring the florida water to their nose uh, which has the strong alcohol content in it and you take a deep sniff, or it just gets close to them and it shocks them back into their system and their awareness is back there with you so tools like this to shock us back into a place this is sort of what's needed and to bring us back to feeling and you know i've heard maestro manuel talk about it when someone is in a place where they're getting lost then the key thing is to bring them back into the heart that's the main thing so if you think about the wonders of heat therapy or cold therapy both are tremendous activators of the heart circulation i mean if there's one part of your body that is like pumping like crazy when you're in cold water it's your or heat it's your heart and you know the physical connecting to the emotional connecting to the spiritual and the mental so the heart physically emotionally and mentally spiritually this brings you to a place of expansion and empowerment and can help bring someone back if they are in a place of a lot of confusion so with synchronicity, it is an interesting, an interesting teaching and one that we perhaps it's important to remember. It's not bringing meaning to us; we bring meaning to it, and that it's a participatory thing. So, I think there's a value also in how we choose to look at circumstances. Uh, you could talk to one person like, oh, a rattlesnake's coming. That's a dangerous animal. You're, you know, bad omen, right? Or you could talk to someone else like, that's a beautiful animal and rare animal. And you did something wonderful for its life. That's a great omen. And you, you passed a certain test. Depending on who you ask, you're going to get certain information. And I saw a thing on a Native American church Facebook page where one guy was saying, <laughs> it's a meme, and he goes, the meme said when you're Cree from the Cree tradition, hardcore Cree, and you bring owl feathers to the teepee, and then it says the rest of the teepee, and then I had a meme of, of some crazy stuffed animal looking totally shocked uh, because the owl feathers for a lot of native traditions are they'll look at you like you're evil if you bring those. But I guess by this meme, this person is demonstrating for the Cree that's like a sacred animal. And I've been down to Peru I remember there was a woman that came to give some teachings. I believe she was Quechua, and she was blessing people with owl feathers. And I'm not an expert. I don't have a lot of knowledge about the Quechua tradition, but I'm making an assumption here. Feel free to let me know if I'm incorrect about this. You can write me. But that uh, the, the owl is a sacred animal there too. And this is something that... 
the Hayoka is a wonderful gift for if you're in a very black and white, right and wrong type of culture. The idea that like this is sacred and that's not sacred. And the, the duality and the imprisonment that comes through the mind when we focus too much in that way realizing that you know we're bringing meaning to it there's nothing owl feathers it's just a bird at the end of the day it behaves in the way it behaves but it's a part of nature it's harmonious with nature it doesn't there's no no one judging it the only thing that is being applied to meaning is one culture says this the other culture says that one culture says bring your hat into the temple the other culture says you better take that thing off all this stuff is made up at the same time the rules are made up but they apply a function for how things will unfold in a ceremonial context so it's important that we respect rules where you go but then also this is an interesting thing right but like for one culture if this is the way that you pray in a teepee and the other culture this is the way that you curse someone how does that work (laughs) so this is i think in a lot of ways as we come across different signs and omens that we also keep this awareness in our head that is this good or bad. I remember, for instance, a very interesting synchronicity when my grandmother passed away very recently in May, very unexpected. She probably died around 5 or 6 p.m. I was very close with her. She was an amazing person. She traveled all over the world to Nepal, to Machu Picchu, Mexico, Alaska, um, Egypt, all over the place. She was a flight attendant. And I used to be able to fly for free on United Airlines because I would have standby passes through her because I was a family member. So I was able to travel the world to over 30 countries, many of them two or three times, because I could just hop on a plane. I remember I went to India, and I had to pay some taxes to get there and back. The total trip to fly to Mumbai cost $27. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, you know, I've paid more for a train ticket to uh, upstate New York than I did to get to Mumbai round trip. So uh but and i I could always communicate with her all kinds of things and i remember the last conversation actually had with her on the phone was telling her that we were pregnant ishelle and i and that i was telling her about a book i was reading which i've talked a lot about here infinite life by robert thurman and i was talking to her about the tibetan traditions and um perspective on reincarnation and death and dying and compassion and service and so on and so forth so i felt like that was a good good sending off for someone passing away so she uh she died unexpectedly in her garden sudden cardiac arrest and i got a phone call from my mom telling me that night but what was strange was that i had received a message from her only a few hours prior which would have been right around the time that she had died like right around the time on facebook and i was like what she's she died how could she have died i got a message from her mom was like wait what and then I look and I realize it was a f- someone made a fake Facebook account of my grandmother and they sent me a message from the fake Facebook account probably at the exact moment that she died. And this wasn't like a new Facebook account because this account had actually messaged me several times prior uh, over the course of the year. Not many. And the messages were all very strange, like definitely like just just the i don't know how to exactly i have to pull it up and it's not worth the energy at the moment but they they were just very like computer blocky type as if a robot was writing it not something my grandmother who was super full of life and all this kind of thing would write me and the but it was so strange the message that i received when she died because there was obviously 
her real Facebook profile, which was different and was clearly her. And this was something that's, you know, someone had created some kind of identity theft attempt or something like that. But the message was right. Probably when she died, that was sent to me was, hi, how are you doing? Have you heard the big news yet? Like, whoa. Even just to say that now, I'm like, whoa. <laughs> like, that's kind of eerie, like, in a lot of ways, right? Like, why did that come at that moment? I mean, can we seriously say that that's just a coincidence? I don't think so. What is the thing about that? And then what's interesting was that I had to go down to get her car because it was given to me. And my dad drove it up to New York City, and I picked up the car. And then when I was driving it back from New York City, we got actually right around outside of our teacher's house, where his driveway is. And a big, big owl, white owl, stopped in front, stood there in the road. And it just stopped. And I stopped the car. And it didn't move. I had the headlights on. It just stared at me. I got out of the car. Continued to stay there. And then it flew away after about 10 seconds. Big owl. Like, it's just this, this the way that, like, the universe communicates with you things at certain moments. And so, you know, one could look at that and be like, oh, owls are predatory animals. Or owls are the symbols of wisdom. There's all kinds of things that we can say about it. Owls are evil in the Native American tradition. Well, they're not in the Cree tradition or in the... We're making an assumption again, the Quechua tradition. I'm pretty sure the Hunikun also say the owl is sacred. So, you know, one can choose to... I mean, you can choose to look at things in that respect. And I think this is one thing that... I would encourage people really to do is to seek out like the inner knowing and to connect with that more than just seeking out someone to tell you what something means. Like I can look at that rattlesnake and say, that rattlesnake was there to help shed the skin of stagnancy, perhaps in a relationship between my sister and I. And help like cultivate growth and healing and empowerment. You can look at the owl as this is like a message from my grandmother saying like, hi, I love you. And I think that it's important that we empower ourselves to be our own healer, our own teacher, our own guide. And this is something that my teacher in many ways has said. At the same time, I call him my teacher because he is my teacher. But the way that I've received teachings from him in many ways has always been empower yourself. Don't mas don't follow the master, he says. Master yourself. And the times when I've gotten too caught up in, like, I'm supposed to follow my teacher, I get bit really hard in many directions, and that's not the right way to go. But the times when I really empower myself and trust my intuition and find creative ways to overcome the obstacles, then I find, like... That's when I'm in right relationship with tradition and teachers and so on and so forth. So this is, as we come across, you know, empowering, or not empowering, but revelatory experiences, challenging obstacles, and obvious signs of something 
that we bring our own meaning to it and also remember like that we have a freedom to be creative that we can choose how the story will go or that we have we can't necessarily we don't have the freedom to just choose how the story will go but we can choose what kind of perspective we want to bring to it we can choose the degree of creativity like yeah okay maybe you're confronted with something that's really painful and it's really difficult and you can look at it and say i did something wrong i'm a moral failure i'm ignorant disrespectful i'm so on and so forth about all the things but or you could look at it and say this is a gift and an opportunity and a blessing in disguise for me to rise above this and I'll look back on it and say that was a really powerful teacher that came into my life that circumstance and situation and it was teaching me the medicine of transmutation and I think this is a deep reflection on like what the snake embodies is transmutation the higher planes of consciousness and the kundalini energy being depicted as a serpent So as we go through life, remember to stay alert and awake to whatever it is life wants to communicate to us, but do not forego your own participation participation in the creative process of that, and dare to trust what's happening inside of you, and dare to trust your own vision and your own creativity and the connection to other worlds that are present within you. Thanks for listening. House, house.